0: Man, we're either set up for one heck of a service or you guys can be really disappointed in a moment. <laughs> Do me a favor. Uh, I'm the world's worst about telling you guys where we're actually going to be in Scripture. So I'm going to start off uh, John 21. So start turning to John 21. Um, you guys know me. My rhythms are a little bit different than Jared. So we're not going to start reading just yet. Um, so, but just start turning to John 21. So what does it mean to be fully immersed in something? Completely and totally immersed in something. Um, I think right now the, the best way to explain that is that we all feel completely and totally immersed in absolute and total heat. Yes, oh my goodness. But we talk about, about immersion, about, about being completely surrounded by something in the way that it's meant to be experienced. Um, I always think about a few things. So if you follow me on any of my socials or you, you talk to me or you know my wife, um, you know that we really like to travel. We love the experiences that we get when we travel. Um, last year, we went to London to get a chance uh, for our 15th wedding anniversary, go somewhere that, that, that uh, um, I'd been once, Tiffany's never been. It's a, a historical place, place that we, we really enjoyed going One of the coolest experiences, though, and keep in mind we're surrounded by all of these amazing things. One of the coolest experiences that we got to have was during the World Cup final. So the biggest sporting event that goes on in the entire world goes on once every four years. We found ourselves in oh, Nate's not happy that I'm talking about soccer right now. Hang in there, Nate. Don't worry, buddy. Um, Is we found ourselves in in a uh, like a, a tent, a watch tent that was honestly about as big as this stage and there's about 200 people in this tent We were right on the the bank of the River Thames. We had the Tower of London behind us. We had the the Tower Bridge overlooking us. The London Eye wasn't too far down the river. Um, And here we are watching this shootout of one of the greatest finishes uh, between a couple of the greatest players that has ever existed um, with 200 people that are just going absolutely bonkers in this tent. It was a really cool cultural experience, something that we don't often experience here, but we go and we're around 200 locals that are, that are watching us in a tent. They're yelling, they're screaming, there's TVs. It was so much fun to have the chance to experience that. You know, uh, another, another moment of total immersion that I've experienced is when I went to Cairo. There, there's, there's a lot of, of cool things. There's a lot of touristy things. Um, I got to see a whole lot of those touristy things. I did learn how to say no in Arabic. La, um, because when you go to the, the great pyramids, everyone is trying to sell you something. So you have to say la a lot. And you have to mean it. You can't just say la. No, 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 no. La, right? And I still wound up spending all of my money. Anyway. But one of the most immersive things was after all of the things I was there to do were done, I went with some friends to downtown Cairo. There was no touristy things. There, there weren't Americanized shops. There, it was, it was, it was uh, a bizarre and bazaar and b a z a a r, not bizarre, but buzzar, like a like a area shop area. Sorry, um, but there was there was open air markets and and open air cafes. I ate something that to this day I still don't know what it is. Uh, but the sights and the sounds, the smells and the looks, like. It was all the way that when you're there and you're experiencing culture, you're experiencing culture the way that the people around you are experiencing it. Very same thing happens like on mission trips. Happens in church camps. Church camps, they take a whole bunch of kids out into the middle of nowhere. Saying it like that sounds weird. Anyway, take them to a church campsite and, and, and they go and for a week they are surrounded by what it looks like to be in a culture that is completely seeking after Jesus. The music, the messages, the, the activities, everything is directed at trying to show students and kids what does it mean to be surrounded by a culture that seeks after Christ in everything that you do. And, and, and so as we look at this, we ask ourselves, are we completely immersed in the love of God? Do we know what being completely immersed in the love of God means. See, the interesting thing is, is there's a little bit of a problem with the way in which we experience love. The way in which we experience love is a problem because we live in a broken world. We are shown love by broken people, and we as a broken person receive love. That means that we will have our heart broken. That means that there will be struggles. That means that people will go back on things that they say. That means there will be situations that we can't control that completely break us down. Sometimes it means that me as a broken person will interpret love from other people in a broken fashion. I am I an am a, 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 a amalgamation of my past and of uh, my struggles and of my problems on top of all of the good things that come with that. And so there are times when I don't even recognize well the love that I'm being shown. Now, don't get me wrong, we get glimpses into amazing moments of love. We get get, uh, the ability to experience love in ways that maybe we never would in another way. We we are impacted and we are cared for in congregations and in families and, and in friend groups. But are we truly immersed in the love that God is continuing to pour out on us? So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke... The call from Jesus to Peter happens when Peter is with his boat. In one of them, he's in his boat actively fishing. The other two, he is with his boat. Jesus calls. Peter leaves everything, drops them right there where he is, and follows Jesus. After three years, some amazing things, an arrest, a horrific death, and a resurrection, we see Peter back in his boat here in John 21. So do me a favor. Let's stand as we start reading in verse 4, it says this, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Father, once again, we come to you and we thank you for this day. We thank you so much for your words. Mold our hearts and our minds in this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. So Peter is back in his boat. He's back where he was in in a parallel fashion. Jesus calls him out of his boat once. We see now he is back in his boat again as we lead into Jesus' restoration of Peter. And so the question that I pose to you is what keeps us back in our boats? What what keeps us back in the habits and the life that we were called out of? Why do we retreat away from the love and the life so often that God is calling us to? See, it's often our own condemnation of ourselves, our own condemnation of our action, our own unwillingness to fully receive the forgiveness and the love that, that God offers because of our expectations, because of the way in which we measure ourselves rather than God's love. We run back to exactly what he has called us out of because it feels comfortable, because it feels safe and unexposed. We feel protected because we're used to the surroundings that we have around us. And so like an ostrich that when faced with danger puts its head in the dirt or like my great Pyrenees sugar that's 90 pounds and comes up to about your waist on all fours, she hides under the table because that's the only thing big enough for her to hide under. We think that we are protected. We think that we are hiding when we are completely exposed to the world and exposed to God. So we close our eyes, and we hide our sheer—excuse me—hide our fear, our shame, and our embarrassment. We keep running back to our boats, not because God sends us there, not because God is the one who says, "Oh, hey, by the way, uh, you have done this. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Take ten steps back and go back here, where it is that I first called you from, and figure it out and get better when you make your way back this time." We go back to our boat because we are so unwilling to experience the full love and forgiveness that God has for us that we hold on to our own failure, our own sin, and our own measures of ourself. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if God is faithful and just to forgive when we confess... Why is it then that we so often are either slow to confess or even unwilling to confess? Why is it that when he is the one who is trying to shower grace upon us, that we are the one that wants to hold that failure so near and dear to ourselves, allowing our condemnation of ourselves to prevent us from experiencing love on God's terms and being fully immersed in his love? Psalm 3.3 says, but you, Lord, are my shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. Now, you guys know me. I have an athletic background. I do my best to avoid constantly telling you sports illustrations because I know not everyone has the same fascination that I do. But I do have one for you. I have a question. When you're watching a sporting event and an athlete does something wrong on the field, maybe something that costs their team the game or, or whatever it is, a big moment, what is it that we see the athlete who just failed so often do? Put their head down. It's why if you've ever been on a sporting field, sporting field, now I sound like I don't know sports, um, if you've ever been on a team, one of the most common things that is said when someone fails is keep your head up. And what we read here is that God is the lifter of our head. My question for you is, do we treat God like he is the lifter of our head? Or do we treat God like he's the one that we need to bow our head and shame away from? See, I think so often what happens is we understand the holiness of God. You and I have talked several times before about the fact that we have to hold both the holiness and the love of God In high esteem, we can't go one or the other, but we hold the holiness of God so high, but we so often think that that means that he is ashamed of us, that he is angry with us. We hide our eyes from him because we think he's the one that's hiding his eyes from us, when really he's the one who's telling us to keep our head up. He is the lifter of our head, even in the difficulty, even in the sin, even in the struggle. He used his son, he uses the people around us, he uses the scriptures that we read, he uses the songs that we hear, maybe the book that you are reading, maybe the way in which God impacts your heart when you're just standing in nature looking at nature. God is seeking to completely immerse you in his love and it is we who so often retreat away from him and retreat to our boats because we are uncomfortable and we are afraid and we are tired and we are trying to create a separation because we feel that shame. It is we who throw the extra weight on the yoke that is around our neck. We try to live up to perfections and expectations and seek the approval when God's already done that. And so Peter was back in his boat because he had exposed his vulnerability once. Look where that got him. He was embarrassed, ashamed, defeated, disappointed. And if that doesn't feel familiar right now, I'm willing to bet that at some point it has. I'm willing to bet that at some point there is a moment when you feel that God let you down or you let God down Or that you were looking for God and didn't feel that God was there. Or that you just didn't even want God to be there at all. That there was a moment when you felt so distant from God that you didn't think that there was a way to span that gap. In verse 7, in John 21, it says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord... He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So when they finally realize what's going on, first of all, I want you to understand how incredibly similar this feels to Luke 5, when Jesus first called disciples and Peter first confessed Jesus as Lord and followed him, dropped his nets and followed him. In both scenes, there are disciples in boats on the water and Jesus says, hey, you haven't caught anything, but throw your nets over on the other side and and get the fish. And they go, okay, well, I guess we'll go ahead and do it. We haven't caught anything. We know what we're doing, but okay, they do and they catch a miraculous catch of fish. The first time it is Peter who comes and says, Lord, get away from me. I am a sinful man. And Jesus calls him this time. Who is it that recognizes that it is Jesus, the Lord, who is commanding them? Audience participation, who is it? Okay, real quick, real quick, real quick. Let me, maybe I threw something at you too quick. In the book of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. John, there we go. Thank you, Chris, my man. John is the one who recognizes this. It's not Peter. So after three years of being at the forefront of exclamations and actions, excuse me, actions, exclamations, proclamations, And confessions, Peter is no longer the one who sees Jesus at work around him. Rather, it's John. And the interesting thing about John is John is the only disciple that we have definitive proof that he was there at the cross. That he did not fall away and retreat out of fear, out of shame, out of whatever it is. We know that that John was there as Jesus was on the cross. John didn't fall away as Peter had. In Psalm 16.3, the psalmist says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Here's the deal. You're going to falter. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. You're going to create expectations for yourself that God never created for you. You're going to do things in your life that you will look back on and say, I really, really, really wish I wouldn't have done that. You're going to need someone who has your back in that moment. You're going to need a community of people around you that are seeking after the Lord... Because in the moments when you are at your lowest, sometimes they will be at their strongest. They will feel the most connected to God while you feel the least connected. And it's those people, just like John was the one who pointed out that it was Jesus that was telling them to throw the nets. It's those people that will see Jesus working in your life even when you don't. It's those people that when you think God has completely abandoned you, will be the one saying... Stay faithful. I see where he is working. I can see the ways in which he is moving in your life even when you don't. They're going to be an example for you to continue to follow. They'll be your strength when you don't have any. They'll be a listening ear. You need a community that is more than just mere friendship. You need a community that is pulling you along to faith but Jesus was on the shore calling again when John exclaims this we see the remnants of the old peter right ties his cloak around him jumps into the water and swims to shore see the last time that, G- that excuse me the last time that peter got out of a boat at Jesus's call he got out and he walked on water he walked for a ways until he started to fear, started to doubt, started to become distracted by the things around him and started to sink. It was Jesus who walked, who picked him up, who restored him. I wonder if that's going to happen again. Let's find out, shall we? Look down at John twenty-one fifteen now. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. In these first two instances, when Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him. The first instance, the first question, do you love me more than these? The second, do you love me? We have a distinction in the words that are used for love. We know that English was not the original uh, language spoken in the Bible. We know that Jesus was speaking Arabic, Greek, that there was a lot of, of, of amalgamation of things in the area. And so when we look at this, we say, okay, what is it that Scripture is telling us? See, when it says truly love, the the NIV has truly love. It's making the distinction between the different types of love. This type is agape. If you've been in church for any time, you might have heard pastors talk about this, that there is a distinction in the Greek word that are used for love. This one is agape. It is an unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that is felt by a person that is willing to do anything For someone else, including sacrificing themselves without expecting anything in return. Peter's response, so that's what Jesus is asking Peter. Peter's response is with the word phileo. It says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you with a phileo type of love. It's a warm affection that exists between those who are near and dear. It describes a fondness, a brotherhood. See, Peter was still talking about loving Jesus, but he wasn't talking about loving Jesus in the way that Jesus was asking. He was feeling the shame and the remorse of the failure and denial. And so twice Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Twice Peter, probably struggling, responds that he does with a deep admiration, which apparently, because of his past, has its limits. You see, Peter is still existing in a reality of his own shame. His own struggle because he wasn't able to hold up his end of the bargain. He was the one who said that he'll never leave. He was the one who said he would never deny Jesus. And yet, he stands in front of the man that he left, that he denied. Right, if you remember back in Luke 5, whenever Jesus calls Peter, they walk about 10 or 11 steps, and then Jesus says, hang on, wait, 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 I forgot. I've got a contract for you to sign, right? Here it is, Peter. It says that if you, if you do any of these things, that you will be condemned and that you will be shamed and that we will forever mock your name. Blank stares, really? That's not in Scripture, There's no contract that Jesus made Peter sign that said, hey, by the way, when you follow me, you have to do this and this and this and this and this and this, this, or you will be put to shame. Psalm 25, 1 says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. To shame. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our actions. Obedience is a factor of our salvation. It is a factor of our faith. So I'm not saying that we throw off obedience altogether, but our hope is not even in our obedience. Our hope is in Christ. It's not in our correct theology. It's not in the amount that we give, the amount that we volunteer. Our hope, just like Peter's, has always been in Christ. And what is our hope in Christ based on? What is our hope in Christ based on? How about a verse that we talk about all the time? You read it all the time. You see it all the time. John 3, 16. You probably don't even have to look at your Bible for this verse. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Audience participation, someone tells me what? What is the, at the end of that sentence? What is the punctuation at the end of that sentence? Oh, maybe there, may, there, there might be an exclamation in somebody's Bible. I didn't, I didn't think about that. It might be an exclamation. My Bible, in my Bible, there's a period. So, so either way, if it's an exclamation mark or if it's a period, it is the end of that sentence. It is not a clause. There is nothing that follows it. It does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life as long as you continue to make sure that you don't fail. You don't sin. You don't fall into some of the habits that you have fallen into before. Again, don't hear me saying it's okay to do whatever you want. But our hope and our salvation and God's love is not based on you earning it. It's based on, God, on Jesus. If, there was, if this was a clause, it would be the most used clause in the history of clauses. Because we continue to struggle and sin. But we're not going to stop in 16. Continue on in 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Hey, the reason that he didn't come to condemn is because we were already condemned. He came as salvation because that was the only option that we possibly had. He didn't come to condemn because we were already condemned. See, I think we feel a lot more comfortable at times thinking that Jesus lines us up on the fence and goes, yes, yes, no, yes, no, no, yes, no. We feel comfortable with that because we think that there is a way in which we use our goodness, we use our righteousness to make sure that we are earning our salvation. And we can admit that out loud or not, but we see it all the time. See, we have this thing where we... In, in, our, in our culture, and honestly, I mean, let's face it, throughout Christian culture, a lot of the other mythologies and religions at times have tended to slip into our religion. We see Greek and Roman and Egyptian theology at times show up, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. But I think the reason that that becomes so tempting is because those theologies and mythologies were thought up by people who They're human. They think like us. It makes way more sense. It makes makes way more sense to be able to say that I can blame a judge for being unjust, that I bring all of my goodness to you and I lay it at your feet and say, look at how good I have been. And when he judges me because I did not believe in the love that he had and in the, the need that I have for him, I can say it's his fault. It's easier for me to bring my goodness and lay it at his feet and say, look at how awesome I am, than to trust in the need for a savior and salvation. Doesn't mean that we don't seek obedience and it doesn't mean that we don't practice repentance, but it does mean that we constantly recognize that the reason Jesus came was because God wanted to save us and that was his solution number 1A. You know, we, 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 we talk about it. Talked about God being the lifter of our, of our head as opposed to the one in which requires shame. Think about this. God wasn't reluctant in sending Christ. He wasn't watching humanity going, oh, they're going to force me to do this. Those idiots, I can't believe it. God looked at Jesus and said, go get them. You are my way, my flesh and blood example, because it's the only way that they're going to be able to understand this of how much I love them, how much I care for them, that I would love them and I would sacrifice, even when they don't deserve it, even when they can't possibly earn this, that, that we are, God excuse me, God was not reluctant in sending Christ, but we are so often ashamed of our sin, as we rightly should be, but we are willing to hold that against ourselves in that we won't rely on the amazing, the astounding, the abounding love of God, but rather we rely on our ability to do enough things right to make it all okay again. Do you really believe that God looked at humanity and begrudgingly said, oh, well, I guess I have no other choice? No, he's God. Contrary once again to popular belief, here comes that mythology thing again. God doesn't need us. My prayers don't give God power. God created me and loves me. He didn't need to send Jesus to make sure that he could retain whatever it is that he has going on. He was whole and complete in himself before he created humanity and created us because he loves us completely. Verse 18 says we are not condemned by Jesus, but we are condemned by our own unbelief. Let me ask you this. Do you believe rightly about how God loves you? Verse 17 in, 20, in, verse, in chapter 21 of John, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you Love me. Notice he doesn't say truly love in an English version. Now he's using phileo. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, this time the words match. Jesus uses phileo. Peter uses phileo. And something hurt even more inside of Peter. We see that obviously the third time, hurts him he knows that maybe I say knows he he is reminded probably of the fact that this was the third time and he was reminded that three times he denied Jesus when he said he wasn't going to maybe the way in which Jesus changed up the language or the expression the way in which he was asking Peter Peter now realizes the change and is hurt by the change the parallel of three and three was difficult the changing of the words was difficult But think about this. Peter was hurt, but this is Jesus once again restoring what was broken, finding what was lost, pulling a doubting and fearful Peter from the water and asking him why he doubted in the first place. This is what Jesus does. This is how Jesus loves us and cares for us. Jesus was telling Peter that it's not your job to unconditionally love in a way that you, as a human, actually aren't possible. Like, you don't have the ability. That's my job. That's why I'm here. Your, 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 your job is to experience my love, is to abide in my love, to be immersed in my love, even in the difficulties, even in the failures, even when you do slip, that I am the one that forgives, I am the one that covers, I am the one that gives righteousness. Even when you want nothing more than to cover your face and run and hide in shame, I am still the lifter of your head. So I'm going to close with Psalm 51. David was a man who could retreat to his righteousness. He could retreat to his desire for God's heart. He could retreat to his prowess, to all the things that he had done in his life. He could retreat to the fact that he was the one who supplanted the original king that God had chosen to lead the nation of Israel and he did it Ten times better. And instead, after his most massive and notable failure, one in which I don't know if anyone in this room even has the ability to pull something like this off. He says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be whiter than snow. Excuse me, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David, in the midst of his most tragic failure, seeks after God's forgiveness, not because of his own righteousness, not because of his ability to do things right, to do things well, not because of anything other than God's love for him. In Philippians three, eight, and nine, we see Paul. Paul lists out previously all of the things that he has done, all the excuse me, all the the, uh, the uh, accolades that he has, all the education. He says all of that is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It's all rubbish compared to experiencing Christ daily. And so, the question that we conclude with is: Are you immersed? in the love of God, or are you retreating to your boat out of shame, out of fear, out of whatever it is? Are you allowing God to love you in the way that he has proven time and time and time again? Father, once again we come to you, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to to seek you, to be here with a church family, to lift our voices, to pray, to sing. Father, I ask in this moment that you would continue to work in our hearts. We know that you've been working and you would continue to work. That you would face us with your love. You would confront us with how gracious and amazing and wonderful you are that we wouldn't pull ourselves back, we wouldn't withhold parts of ourselves, parts of our heart, parts of our mind, Father. But rather we would give it completely to you, knowing that not only do you forgive and love, but you transform in the midst of all that. Father, we thank you so much for this time, and I ask that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'll be down here at the front as we respond, whatever response looks like. Maybe it's standing and singing. Maybe it's sitting and kneeling and praying, grabbing a friend, confessing, talking, crying, however it is. I ask that you would respond as we, pray, as we sing.